Hello, everyone. Welcome back to SALT Talks. My name is John Darcy. I'm the Managing Director of SALT, which is a global thought leadership forum at the intersection of finance, technology, and geopolitics. SALT Talks are a series of digital interviews we've been doing during the work from home period with leading investors, creators, and thinkers. And what we're really trying to do is replicate the experience that we provide at our global conference series, the SALT Conference, uh, which is providing our audience a window into the minds of subject matter experts and providing a platform for what we think are big, important, world-changing ideas. Uh, we're very excited to welcome Stephanie Link today to SALT Talks. Uh, Stephanie is the Chief Investment Strategist and Portfolio Manager at Hightower, which is a national wealth management firm that provides investment, financial, and retirement planning services to individuals, foundations, and family offices, as well as 401k consulting and cash management services uh, to corporations. Prior to joining Hightower, uh, Stephanie was the Senior Managing Director and the, and the Head of Global Equities Research at Nuveen, where she co-managed the CREF Stock Variable Annuity Portfolio with $170 billion in assets. She also managed her own U.S. core portfolio with $3.7 billion in assets and oversaw 33 investment professionals who collectively managed about $40 billion. Uh, prior to joining Nuveen, Stephanie spent seven years at The Street uh, as the Chief Investment Officer and Co-Portfolio Manager of Jim Cramer's Charitable Trust. And before that, she served for 10 years at uh, Prudential Equity Group as Managing Director of Institutional Sales and Director of Research. She began her career at Dean Witter Reynolds uh, in the Institutional Sales Department. Stephanie earned a bachelor's degree in finance from Boston College, and she currently serves as the chairperson for the Investment Advisory Council at the Basking Ridge Presbyterian Church in Basking Ridge, New Jersey. Uh, she's an investment professional with over 20 years of experience managing money, and her professional insights are frequently sought, uh, sought out for industry events and media, and you've likely seen her on CNBC where she's a contributor. Stephanie, we're very excited to have you today. Reminder to our audience, uh, if you have any questions for Stephanie during today's talk, you can enter them in the Q&A box at the bottom of your video screen. And hosting today's interview is Anthony Scaramucci, founding, uh, a founder and managing partner of Skybridge Capital, a global alternative investment firm, and the chairman of SALT. And with that, I'll turn it over to Anthony for the interview. Stephanie, it's great to see you again. Uh, and as we were talking before we went live, thank you for bigfooting John Darcy on the Room Raider. The room looks absolutely fantastic. Uh, you know, my my son is at, uh, he just graduated from Stanford Business School. He's like, Dad, why do you ask people about their backgrounds? They can find them on Wikipedia. And I said, well, I ask people about their backgrounds because maybe they'll tell us something that's not on Wikipedia. So, so Stephanie, what's not on Wikipedia? What could you tell us about your path to money management and you know that odyssey that you were making as you were trying to figure out your career, what triggered you to go in this direction? Yeah, and it's so great to be here, Anthony and, and John. Thank you guys so much for the invitation. Um, I, I have to say, uh, after being in the business 27 years, 16 years on the sell side, and then 16 years on uh, um, on, on the buy on the buy side, um, it really has been a remarkable learning experience. The sell side, as you know, is under secular pressure. Right. And they have been for a long time. Quite frankly, I'm surprised that a lot of self side institutions still actually exist because a lot of people don't want to pay for research and trying to get paid for that has always been a challenge. And so I left the sell side and I wanted to run money because I enjoyed picking stocks. I enjoyed um, marketing our analysts, which is what I was doing on the sell side. So 
Jim Cramer and I had a mutual friend and uh, he was looking for someone to run his charitable trust. And small amount of money, but a lot of subscribers that are attached to that product. And so, and you know, Jim, he's so visible. Um, and so we met for 30 minutes, we had tea and he hired me on the spot. And I thought, well, this is gonna be a really great learning experience. I'll be here for a couple of years and then I'll figure out something else to do. And so six and a half years later, I'm his longest standing employee. Um, and uh, I'll tell you, we, we've, we have, have had some battles before, but he taught me a remarkable amount in terms of actually running a portfolio. Because it's much different, Anthony, you know this, it's much different than you know being a sell side person, marketing ideas, coming up with strategies and that sort of thing. It's putting your, your money where your mouth is. Sure. Um, and I think that that was such a great experience. And then of course, when I was working for him, I uh, became a CNBC contributor, but it wasn't him that introduced me actually to uh, the CNBC folks. It was uh, my COO got a phone call from, from uh, CNBC and said, you know what? I know Stephanie and her dream job was to be Chris McKendry on ESPN. <laughs> so, so this is not in Wikipedia. So um, she, he said, well, let's give her a shot. Maybe she'll be okay on TV talking about stock. So that began my career. And then, um, and then TIAA, which is now called Nuveen, they were a client of mine. So I had known them for many, many years and they were looking for someone to be the face of the firm and then also to run money. So I stayed there for five years, but the company continued to see outflows and the buy side is continuing to see outflows. It doesn't matter about the performance. And so those challenges were sort of frustrating. I think for 27 years, I had to cut costs. I had to right size businesses. And I was kind of tired of that. So I stepped back and I said, where in the investment world, where is their growth? And I literally linked in to Bob Oros at Hightower, the CEO, and he linked in back to me and we exchanged ideas and he thought, hmm, I don't have a job for you, but let's create one. Let's try to figure out how we can build our brand because it is in growth mode. A company that's gonna hire someone during this environment in the COVID world, I think speaks volumes. And I am really looking forward to working with the advisors and helping them grow assets. I'm gonna run my own portfolio as well. And then um, I'm um, running the, I'm in charge of the OCIO division, which is just an outsourcing mechanism for the uh, advisors if they like to uh, invest in the products that we manage. So I'm really excited about it. It's, uh, it's different. Growth is di has a different feel to it, for sure. Well, it's great, but it also speaks to your courage that you're willing to uh, venture out in this environment where, unfortunately, we're all stuck at home. Before I get to the next question, I just got to tell you this quick Jim Kramer story. So I'm 23. I'm at the Harvard Law School. Kramer is a god to guys like me because I wanted to always get into money management. He had worked at Goldman and he was recruiting people. And then he had just left to start his hedge fund. He, he had started a hedge fund with a guy named Larry Levy. Uh, and these guys were in cash during the 87 crisis. And Jim writes about this yeah. in Confessions of a Street Addict. So I got his phone number from somebody. I cold called him. Oh. He picks up the phone in that barking squeal voice of his. And he says, what do you want? I said, I, I, need, I really want to come meet you. I want to get a job on Wall Street, stuff like that. For about four minutes, he lit into me. Do you read the Wall Street Journal? Of course, I said no. Do you read the New York Times? Of course, I said no. He went down a list of publications. He says, listen, man, you are not ready for this job. You need to read every, every single one of these papers, and you need to start following the markets. Slams down the phone on me. Wow. And so I 
can never thank him enough for that four minute experience because I went and did all that, Stephanie. I went and read all those things. So, uh, and it and it prepared me for those job interviews. So, uh, he's a legend, and uh, and we both obviously have a tremendous amount of respect for him. So, let's talk about what we do for a living. Okay, the S and P is now flat on the year. Uh, you know, after being down thirty, the Nasdaq is up twenty year to date. Uh, we're at Skybridge. Look, I'll confess, we're in structured credit, so we're still down on the year. We're probably down sixteen now, uh, although we're getting an eight percent yield on our portfolio. I think this stuff's very cheap, but this stuff has snapped back, and the composition of the S and P is totally different today mm-hmm. than it was in January in terms of where the value is. So, is this justified? What's your opinion of all of this? Yeah, I think it is justified, especially on the equity side, because you have had a massive amount of liquidity. You really have. I mean, the fiscal um, liquidity, and we're going to get more, probably um, a trillion or another two trillion in, in fiscal um, monetary policy has been just un- it's just been remarkable. Um, it's now, if you combine the two fiscal and monetary policies that are put in place, it's 44% of our U.S. GDP. Just to put it in a context, you know this, Anthony, back in 2008, that percentage of fiscal and monetary policy in that crisis was only 4% of US GDP. So this is enormous, enormous liquidity. This is a very big tailwind. Um, and while I, I feel a little less, un, I'm a little less un, um, certain about where the recovery trajectory is gonna go because we've had now reopens and then partial closures, we have up until this month, we have seen pretty good economic data, the snapback. And so you've got this combination and what I said, like it's like a debate or a push-pull between the V-shaped recovery in May and June. And then all of a sudden July reopens, partial closures. What is this going to do to the recovery? And we're already starting to see it. We had two weeks in a row of you know, initial claims being very disappointing. I'm going to look at the four-week average of initial claims. Let's, we'll, we'll watch that, and we can get into that if you like. But um, if, it, if it continues to go up, that's something that is worrisome to me. But nevertheless, I do think that we are seeing a recovery. And as a result, we are seeing a profit recovery. And in fact, 83% of the companies in the S&P 500 have beat earnings. 65% have beaten on revenue so far this quarter. So we are seeing a little bit better in terms of economic activity and also uh, on on earnings. And I expect 2021 is going to be a year where we kind of have to normalize earnings to get comfortable about valuations. But I do think you are going to continue to see progress as I mentioned, initial claims are a little bothersome. Restaurant openings and reservations is flattening out. TSA travel is actually rolling. But on the flip side, you have housing that is extremely strong. I mean, every single company that have has had have has had housing in their revenue mix, they've actually beaten on expectations in earnings, and they've had some really remarkable things to say. We can get into some of those details if you like too. We also have really a nice recovery in auto. I mean, look at AutoNation. I mean, the CEO of AutoNation said it was the best quarter in their history. So you listen to these kind of comments. Home sales, home sales. Home sales are, are off the charts. So I feel like it's, um, you know, there's the push-pull, there's a mix going on in the economy, but that's one of, and the reason that, that, the, that the, we're going to get more fiscal policy is because it is uneven, right? It's nothing, nothing is perfect. But the market is sniffing out the recovery next year and the normalization of profits. So, 
So let's talk about the tech sector for a second, though, because it's, it's raging. And again, there's four or five stocks that are making up a very large percentage now of the market capitalization of the S&P. So it's sort of like the S&P 5 and then the S&P 495. <laughs> what, what are your thoughts on that, Stephanie? Yeah, no, I mean, it is, it's It's not something I want to see. And, you know, you bring up a great stat. So if you look at SANG plus Microsoft, that's 20% of the S&P 500, and they accounted for 80% of the returns in July. So to your point exactly, it is super concentrated. And you mentioned early on, the NDX is up 20% on the year, which is also um, amazing. Um, it's. I would love to see a more broad picture. I really would. Um, and I think you are starting to see pockets um, as I mentioned, we did get um, you know house, housing, it's auto sales, it's you know retail sales, it's e-commerce. I mean, I feel like we are starting to broaden just a little bit, but it is still very, very focused for now. But then again, these companies have total addressable markets that are enormous. The Internet of Things is going to be a trillion dollar market by the end of this decade. Wearables is going to be a $55 billion market in the next two years. Cloud is going to be, their total addressable market in the next three years is $600 billion. And SaaS Cloud, which is a component of cloud, is going to be a trillion dollar total addressable market by the end of the decade. So I feel like, and these numbers are probably underestimated given now that we're working from home and, and all the things that we're doing. And so I, I feel like in a way it is justified that they should be doing so well. That said, I mean, on, on the margin, I've been taking profits because I think you have to. Um, that's one thing Jim Cramer always said, never apologize for taking a profit. And so I'm very mindful of the expectations and the setups for tech and we'll see tonight, we get a whole bunch of really, really high profile companies that report tonight. It, and maybe we'll see a pullback, maybe, they can, maybe they'll stall out, um, but in a slow growth world, growth is going to outperform value. Even though I have a value bias myself, as you know, uh, which makes me sad to say, but that's the reality. So you have to have kind of a barbell. Oh, yes, and I've always seen you talking about the fundamentals and sort of that whole gram and dot analysis. And so that brings up a very, Good question. Is value over? Is the debate over value over? Uh, has growth won the debate? And is there really not going to be a time where you see value eclipse growth going forward, given the magnitude of the transformation of the future economy? I mean, I, I think growth has a very hard time if you don't. I can have see sadness in your eyes, Stephanie, as I'm I asking know, you this question. I, I know, I know, I know. And by the way, I do own some of these some of these tech names. You have to because my bench is the S and P 500, and they they represent a whole 26 oh, percent of the of of the market cap. So, anyway, um, I you know I, I think it's hard in a slow growth environment for value to outperform. And I really think you need better GDP, better growth, and a little bit of inflation. And while inflation break-evens are actually on the rise, which is sort of interesting to me, and the dollar has pulled back, and that should lead to a value risk-on kind of a trade, if you will, it's hard when you have such, again, total addressable market opportunities for these companies. And so I think it's a combination, Anthony. I think you can own a little bit of both, but you know, it's not been it's not been the right call to be in the value sectors. It really hasn't, even though that they've recovered nicely from the market. No, I understand. Time. Listen, I, I I've been vexed. I've been vexed with this for the last ten years, since uh, actually twelve years since the last crisis. What about the traditional sixty forty portfolio model? Still viable in your mind? I mean, I 
think so. Um, I mean, every person is different, right? And, and depending on your age and your risk tolerance and that sort of thing. I just don't, I mean, it's so hard to find value in the fixed income market. That's the whole problem, right? And so that's why I think the equity markets, another reason why the equity markets have done so well is because it's there is no alternative. And if you can find companies that have a dividend yield of two or 3%, that's way better than what you're getting it from a 10 year. So I, I kind of lean a little bit more on the equity side, diversification, of course, global exposure, little bit of EM. Um, and then also uh, you have some fixed income, but then you have some alternatives too in your world. So talking well, about our world's, getting beat, our, our world's getting beat up, Steph, which is a sign usually that we're on the road to recovery. We got hurt hard in 2008 and then we had our best performance over the next four years. So right. let's see what happens. But John Darcy, go ahead. Yeah, you talked a little bit about the push-pull between value and tech, and there's another push-pull going on between passive management and active management. Obviously, in the last six to seven years uh, following the crisis, passive management has massively outperformed. Things like hedge funds have been a little bit out of favor. Do you think, given the environment we're in and given the sort of the rich valuations on equities right now, that a more active management type of approach might go through a period of outperformance for the next three to five years? I mean, I hope you're. I hope so because that's what I do for a living. That's what you guys do for a living, right? But it hasn't been the case. And in fact, this is one of the reasons why I mentioned that the buy side is under such, such secular pressure because there's so much competition. The performance has been okay in some instances, very good, and in other instances, not so good. Um, you hope that your clients are longer term and they can kind of ride through the storms, if you will. But I really believe this. This. This trend, it's it's not. I'm not sure what it's going to take, quite frankly, because if performance doesn't really matter, I mean, we were at TIA, we were we had great numbers, and we still saw outflows every single day. So I just think that maybe maybe we set up for a reversion. I hope so, um, but I don't know if there's really concrete evidence that we're even starting that at this point. Right. And you touched uh, briefly on earnings uh, in your opening, but I want to talk a little bit more about earnings season. I follow you on Twitter, and I love uh, keeping up with your analysis on, on different earnings reports that come out. What have we learned so far from earnings season? And, and are investors sort of just giving 2020 earnings a pass and focusing on the future? What can we glean so far from what we've seen uh, during this earnings season? Yeah, it is, it is interesting that the analysts were so wrong, right? I mean, that 83% that beat rate is crazy to me, right? I mean, that's very high relative to historical levels. So um, we came into, into the earnings period and we were flying blind. We really were. We had no idea. Um, and I, I've been surprised by two things. One, the companies are already starting to talk about currency and the dollar weakness and how it's going to be less of a headwind. Um, kind of took me by surprise a bit. In fact, Pfizer said just the other day that they're going to see a $300 million benefit. So less bad in terms of getting pressure from the currency side of things. So that's interesting. And then that bodes well for certain industries, multinationals, right? So you would think that maybe if you're going to see any kind of rotation, maybe it is really more kind of global multinationals, if you will. Um, I've been very surprised at how strong, I'll mention it again, housing is. And we know existing home sales are up 20%. But I, any company, it's Stanley Black & Decker, it's Palti Homes, um, it's uh, Lennar, it's Tall Brothers, it's DR Horton. They're all saying that housing is absolutely on fire. And 
by the way, this, this, these stocks are still super cheap. So you're going to see, again, more of a rotation, I think, into, into, uh, into housing. And we'll see about auto. So auto, the global data that I get suggests that the light vehicle sales around the globe are at 73 million SAR. And that's up from 43 million SAR in April. And so we are, China is back to last year's levels in auto. North Korea saw last month up 41% jump. So you are seeing this, and I think this is a very controversial topic. I don't think people believe that we are seeing an improvement in auto. And I think that's why you're seeing some of these semiconductor companies do well, right? With the end market exposure to auto, because you're starting to see production back online. So overall, I mean, I think it's still early, um, I think the companies have really managed well. I think they continue to underpromise and try to overdeliver. That's what CEOs really truly get paid to do. Um, and so um, I'm interested to see the back half, and especially tonight with the Fang reporting. Anthony, I'll let you ask the next question. I know you don't well, like when I dominate the conversation. No, 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 I do. He's actually very good at it. He's, uh, you know, we we know you're a rising star, John. We know. <laughs> We know that I'll be soon. It'll be long gone. I'll be on the pepper talks when this is over, Stephanie. Okay, if this keeps up. Okay, well, forget about Saul. But uh, you know, I want I want you to talk a little bit about the private markets and sorting through the rubble inside the private. How do you look at the private markets after the pandemic? What's your thought there? Well, I mean, the private. So um, what I do is I actually talk about um, or I look through on an, from an equity point of view, you know, I look at the, the Blackstones of the world and I look at the Apollos of the world. And, and I've invested in, in some of those companies as well. But, um, you know, you're the expert on, on, on this on this field. You'll know better than I. I think there is a place for in every portfolio for a, a diversification, and I will tell you just back on the in, on the alts on the alts comment that I made before. That's the number one um, item that everyone that I'm meeting, the advisors, that's the number one thing they want help with because they don't know as well. It's not as liquid. Um, it's something that they really do want to have because their some of their clients want that exposure, but they know nothing right. about it. So it's interesting yeah, no, I, to me. I, yeah, I just think there's going to be room there because of the regulation, things like space. There's still a tremendous amount of mid-sized to very large companies like SpaceX that you know we could take advantage of in the private market side, which if you look at the relative valuations, it, 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 it's attractive. Um, but I want to I ask you about your... Uh, your views about the country, the crisis, the past crisis, you, crises you and I have seen in our careers. Yeah. Is this different? Does it feel different? Is it, you know, you, know you, you and I could tick off 10 or 12 crises that we've lived through since we got started in our careers. And so we know that we're going to always face them, you know, and I always joke with my team, the thousand year flood happens every four or five years on Wall Street. So it's, you know, it's like one of these things we can't avoid. But is this different? And I hate saying it that way, because I know everyone says, well, when this time is different, it's not different. But it does feel different to me. And I'm just wondering if it feels different to you. And if it does, why does it feel different? Yeah, no, I think it's, it's definitely different. I think you just go back to the last uh, crisis uh, in 8 and 09. And that was a financial meltdown. That was a huge issue with the financial services companies being the ones that really created it and nearly took our country down. 
Um, I mean, we lost banks, we lost company, huge companies last last crises. Not that we're not going to lose companies this go round, but this was an intentional shutdown by the government because it's a health crisis, and we maybe weren't as in, as well informed about COVID nineteen. Who knows? We I, I don't really I don't know, but we didn't. Um, we weren't prepared for it like we should have been. We had to do it. We had to take aggressive action. We had to close. We're seeing now what's happening in these partial uh, closures again, as you've seen some of these reopenings. Um, we're, we're, we're all wearing masks now. We weren't wearing masks in March. I mean, there's so much going on. But when you close a country down, we're losing $25 billion a day in the country. I mean, that's just huge. So now that you have partial openings, I do not think... Um, uh, partial openings and partial closings, I don't think we're going to close the country down entirely again. I really don't. And I do um, take a lot of solace in the fact that these companies that are working on a vaccine are really making tremendous progress. I mean, listen to J&J. &J. They just increased their trials, their human trials by two months. They just, they accelerated it. And so that's a really good thing. Look, look Moderna, look at Gilead. I mean, there are all these companies that are working so hard at trying to get us a vaccine that I'm encouraged that hopefully it's by the end of the fourth quarter um, and maybe we can get it mass distribution in 220, uh, 221. So I don't know, um, I don't know how long this is gonna last. I do think though that we are starting to see a recovery because we are opening, um, but uh, it's, it's a lot different than what it was in 2008. Yeah, it's just the, the combination of the financial issues plus the health scare is something I think is unique, you know, and we had the oil shock going on in April as well. So it just, well, it, it was a trifecta that I don't think we've, we've seen all of those colliding together at the same time. We've got a question out here. Let me ask this question, then I'll let John ask some. Uh, coming in on the fixed income side, what do you think of substituting preferreds for bonds? What's your thought there? Well, Oh, I think that that's a great idea because obviously you get more yields for certain. Um, I think you have to be very selective though. It's like picking a stock. You have to have confidence in the fundamentals of the company and the balance sheet and that sort of thing. But absolutely, that is a great combination. You can certainly mix in that along with their, because you're not getting yield in, 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 in munis or corporates. You're not really getting that much. So, Stephanie, you talked about the Fed earlier and about how much the liquidity they've dumped into the market has impacted asset prices, particularly in the equity market. The Fed is now starting to trim its balance sheet. Is this a completely Fed-driven market whereby some <laughs> of the volatility we're seeing today in markets is driven by you know, concerns that uh, maybe the fiscal stimulus isn't going to be as large or as quick as people would like? I know some of the unemployment benefits are expiring, and then you have the Fed trimming its balance sheet a little bit. Is Is the market completely driven by you know, news flow on on uh, policy, or or is there are fundamentals playing any role in in volatility that we're seeing? Well, I mean, the Fed is really, I mean, they really came out with the bazooka, right? I mean, I thought unlimited QE was one thing, and then all of a sudden they're buying junk bonds on the other side. So it's like, wow, I've never seen such extreme action, and um, it is it's very substantial. And Could you, you get them to buy some structured credit for me, Steph? I mean, if you ever get in touch with any of these guys, just could you mention that for me? Go Absolutely. ahead. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt. I thought maybe I just, I ask everybody I come in contact with. If so they could I will. I will. Absolutely. All right. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> um, I would just simply say, though, with regards to the liquidity, I mean, did you hear, I mean, I thought Powell sounded even more dovish this week 
than yes, he did no even a month ago, right? And and well, a couple of, and a couple of weeks ago, you had a, lo- a number of Fed governors also sounding much more dovish, like there's more we can do. We're still keeping an eye on everything. I was just surprised that they were still so dovish. And so they, I mean, the Fed funds the Fed fund future market actually doesn't have the Fed raising rates until the end of 2022. Yeah, well, I, you know, uh, uh, the president has called him privately the most improved player on his team. When I heard that from one of the uh, guys that I still talk to inside the administration, I was I was laughing at that. I thought that was right. typical of the president. You know, and yeah. if you notice, he doesn't tweet about him anymore. So no, he doesn't. The, you know, uh, Chair, Chairman Powell has done a great job. Obviously, he's a very cautious guy, but he recognizes what we all recognized last time. And if you read the book Firefighting, which was written by Geithner and uh, Bernanke and Paulson, they said, do more, be more aggressive. And mm-hmm. I think this Fed has decided to do that. I think it's been very helpful to the overall oh economy. Oh, absolutely. absolutely. Well, at least I mean, the expectations, you know, that that's half the battle is if, if investors feel like if anything goes wrong, the Fed will be there with an even bigger bazooka than they had last time, then it encourages risk-taking, which, which we're seeing in markets today. Absolutely. No, absolutely. You worried about inflation? Stephanie? Ah, uh, you know, I, I, that's, I, that's why I mentioned the inflation break-evens. You, have you seen that chart? If you haven't, you should, you should look at it on Bloomberg because it is sort of an interesting chart. It really has rebounded and it, and it gives me pause for sure. Uh, I don't think you're going to see inflation in the near term, maybe in the next three to six months, but I do think you're going to see something. What do you think gold is? T- I think gold is telling us that for sure. I am watching the dollar too, because that is also going to be instrumental in kind of the pile on if we do get some inflation. But um, I, I think it's probably more like a 12 to 18 month kind of time horizon that we see it. But I have to say, I my entire team that, that I work with right now, they're fairly young. They've never seen inflation in their whole lives. So there are, there are PMs out there. There are people running money that have never seen inflation, which it, 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 when it comes, it's going to come pretty fast, I think. Yeah, well, I, you know, listen, I'm, I'm worried about it, as you have to be worried about it, and obviously gold prices. But I remember going back to 2010 and 11, where gold was on a little bit of a run, but the mm-hmm. Fed was telling you there wasn't going to be inflation. And then what you sort of realized that they were replacing a lot of lost economic output. That's why you didn't get the inflation. However, mm-hmm. you got the asset inflation. Yeah, I think yeah. that's where the anxiety comes into the system from a political perspective, because, you know, if you're lowering rates, rates work great on assets. If you own assets, the asset prices go up, but your wages do not necessarily go up, you know. Uh, and even though everything has changed, like I still remember 35 years ago in the economics class, a very brilliant economics professor said to me, you're not going to get lots of inflation in the United States without wage growth. Yeah. If you study wages, you study wage growth. You don't really have a lot of mobility in wages right now, given the magnitude of people that are looking for work or are currently unemployed due to the work stoppages. So, so I just think it's going to be hard to get the inflation, even though the expectation is there. We'll have to see. But uh, I think it's going to look a lot like 2009 and 10. It's going to surprise people. Mm. Go ahead, that'll John. Be, that'll be good yeah. for stocks. Yeah, no question. <laughs> No question. So the the pandemic in a lot of ways was sort of like a meteor strike that that came completely out of left field. A lot of people were unprepared for it. And we've talked to some hedge fund managers and others who are sort of changing the way they think about risk management as a result of the pandemic. You know, we haven't had a pandemic like this in 100 years. So a lot of people were very unprepared for all the different implications of it. 
How, if at all, has the pandemic changed the way you think about portfolio construction for clients and about risk management in general? So I would say that um, I always want to be diversified, for sure. Um, and I actually lean towards high quality companies and blue chip companies. My, my mantra is if I can get the number one or number two company in an industry with a great balance sheet, strong management team, market share growth, they're investing appropriately and properly to continue to see growth in the future, what I call compounders, if you will. Um, I, those are the kinds of companies that I think will weather the storm better. And they're also the kind of companies that they're not going to not go down in a market. They're going to go down but they're going to be the first ones to actually recover. So what I call what I called them back in March, these kinds of companies, I call them accidentally high yielders. So that they went down, their yields went up, they had the liquidity, and that was was why I actually added in 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 March and April and it was hard, trust me. I mean you guys know, it, it really really was hard to buy anything back then. I mean we had so many very prominent figures in the industry really be very negative and very cautious. And, and quite frankly, it was alarming. I actually told everyone, just turn the TV off. You can't listen to these kinds of people and you just got to focus on fundamentals. And so for me, that's what, that's what drives me. And I don't know if it's necessarily the pandemic has changed that. It's just intensified that. It's just reminded me that I think my process makes sense. And while I might lag on, on kind of these rip rallies, because it's always that secondary, third groupings that do well and outperform, on the way down, you don't get hurt nearly as much. And again, if you're diversified and you do have, if it, is it 60-40? Is it 70-30? Is it 80-20? You have a balance. Um, I think that, that that will serve you well over the long term. I want to finish with a question about Hightower, uh, which you started there, I think, three and a half weeks ago. And, and it's yeah. a very fast-growing firm. The independent RIA model is, is on fire in the marketplace because of how it eliminates conflicts of interest between uh, you know, the advisor and their clients. Talk a little bit about your experience so far and why you were so attracted to that independent RIA model and what it's been like dealing with uh, clients in a different way than you were when you were on the buy side. And, sure. and full, full disclosure, Stephanie, John worked at Hightower. <laughs> and and I'm, I'm still, uh, I'm still and invested. We're very close in, to a lot of the Hightower. Say, I'm entries. invested in the success of the business. Uh, so I, I'm a cheerleader from afar. I will prove you proud. I will make All you right. proud. <laughs> yeah, I'm excited that you joined. It, it was a uh, exciting press release to read. So I'm they, they about were that. about to change the name of the company to Low Tower, and then John <laughs> left. They said it was okay to stay at High Tower. <laughs> but, but, but go ahead, Stephanie. I'm sorry. I have to. I have no. to riff him a little bit because, you know, he's look at him. How can I not riff him? All right, go ahead, Steph. I'm sorry. George Washington, George Washington in the background. Yeah, yeah. Well, he's related to George Washington. I mean, <laughs> how am I not going to riff him? I'm not going to. I'm an Italian kid from Long Island. Oh my my Met Cup, see? That's awesome. Today's going to be an amazing day. See that? They keep losing, but it's fine. <laughs> uh, the power of positive thinking, right? Um, well, tell us about Hightower. Yeah, no, it's been a really great experience so far. So, I, as I mentioned earlier, I wanted to try to find a place that was growing in the business. I had gotten tired of cost cutting and restructuring and reorganizing and laying off and it just wasn't fun. And that was on the sell side and the buy side. And it was a surprise to me. But when I, when I really did a lot of homework on the industry, I think the demographics are very favorable, number one. And number two, the piece that I'm going to be involved in is investing uh, in, in products, uh, in equities, in multi-asset, in fixed income, in alts. 
and I get I have a great team that's there, um, and we're going to hopefully be able to get the advisors to outsource uh, to our products, and then I'm also running my own products. So I'm still running money because I think. Well, I, that's my passion, quite frankly. And, I, and I obviously, you know, I think to be on TV and to be in the media and to talk about stocks and to talk about the market, I think you have to have skin in the game and to have credibility. And so, so, so that's why we decided I will still have a product. We'll, I'll have this other OCIO group too. I'll be working with the advisors, whether they put money with us or not, I'll be happy to talk to their clients as well uh, and to give them advice if I can. Obviously, I'm more equity focused versus fixed income and alts, but I, that's the piece that was also very interesting to me that I could learn. At this, at this point in my career, there's a chance that I could still learn because I learned in the stock market. It's very humbling. Things change every day, but I wanted to know this is the way I think this is where the industry is going in, in total. And so I wanted to be part of that. And then as I've met people, advisors as well as corporate, and everyone is so, um, well, they're kind and they were very welcoming, but they're also so focused on growth. That every single person, how are we growing? What, are we, what can we do? Where can we expand? Where, are we, where is it not working? And we can reallocate the resources. I mean, they're being very creative. As I mentioned, Bob Oros, the CEO, created this position. And we talked about what would be the perfect job for me. And uh, it's a lot, it's like a fire hose, but it's, uh, it's very exciting. And, um, and so I'm, I'm thrilled to be part of it. Um, as I mentioned before, to hire in this kind of environment, it speaks volumes. Um, and, uh, and, and I think, I think I've made the right choice. So I'm excited. Well, we, we, we love the company. We agree. We love the company. We have a tremendous amount of uh, RAAs over there in, in your, in your distribution network. And we do a lot of business with them and they do a great job servicing their clients. And I always maintain that you're just not going to sit in ETFs your whole, you're, you're, if you are a high net worth individual, or you're an endowment, you're saying you're going to want to speak to people because uh, flying the plane robotically has worked, but it may not always work. Uh, and I think it's very important to have those touch points. So that, they've got to be thrilled to have you, Stephanie. Uh, John uh, is, is very thrilled because I think he owns a small little piece he's <laughs> indicating. So he's, he, he's recognizing that you're already adding value to his life. That's a lot. That's but, awesome. uh, we, we, we are very grateful to have you on. I hope we can get you back as we get closer to the election, because I think, you know, the economy is going to look a little different as we get out uh, into the fourth quarter. Uh, we'd love to have you back to hear your insights there as well. John, do you have anything else you want to add? That's it. We appreciate you taking the time, Stephanie. I know you're busy uh, in your new role, but we appreciate you taking time out to join us. And, and we'll look forward to watching you on CNBC in, in the coming weeks and months. Thank you so much for the invitation. It was a lot of fun. Hey, congratulations, Stephanie. Wishing Thanks. you the best. Thank, Thank you. Thank you. Stay safe.